Good evening. It is good to see each of you. It does encourage us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. It's wonderful to think about that someday that we can be called up and that we can hear our name called. And that's what we want to study about tonight is, is hearing that name. It's wonderful to be able to announce to you that we've had a couple to be baptized into Christ this afternoon, Ed and Marion Connor. Uh, they, are, they live in, in the uh, Old Hickory. They live in Hickory Hills subdivision. And we are thankful for their decision to be baptized into Christ. And we look forward to you meeting them. Uh, also be remembering Marion in your prayers. Uh, she is going through uh, quite a serious illness right now. Probably will have to have surgery on Monday. And we want to be mindful of, of her condition and be supportive of her in every way that we can. And I look forward to you meeting them. They are a delightful couple. Do continue to be praying for the souls where the seeds have been planted. There's a Bible study taking place right now where three individuals are involved in that study and a lot of other studies scheduled for the future. And our prayer is that, that we can take God's plan, His Word, and we can plant it in the souls and the hearts and that individuals will deal honestly with that. And the parable of the sower, the parable of the sower, there was four types of soil. And the one soul that produced fruit was the ones that had an honest heart. And we pray that souls are honest and that they will deal well with God's Word. As a matter of fact, let me ask you something tonight. Are you honest? Do you have an honest heart? Tonight, if we study something and you find out that what God has asked you to do is something that you have never done, Will you be honest enough in your relationship with God tonight that you will say right now, yes, I will obey what God has asked me to do? Friends, there's not any reason for us to be here if we won't say that, is it? I mean, really, all we're doing is playing games with God. God, I'll let you ask what you ask, but I'll live really the way I want to live. Surely there's not anyone here tonight that would be comfortable doing that. So tonight, as we begin this lesson, let's all make a commitment to God that we'll be honest. That we'll have soul, a heart, that accepts the seed. And we will be people that will bear fruit for God. And the first fruit that will be born will be our own soul submitting to God. Sally and Johnny enjoy going to their grandparents' home out in the country every summer. This particular summer, Johnny had stopped and picked up a slingshot while he was out in the country. He wanted to learn how to shoot it. He went out early that morning and he gathered several smooth stones out of the creek and he went deep into the woods and to his surprise, it was hard to hit your target. As a matter of fact, he flipped that slingshot all morning long and he never once hit his target. And it was about time for lunchtime. And very sadly, he started walking back to the house. He's disappointed in the fact that he was such a terrible marksman. And as he went back to the house, he had one stone left. And as he got closer to the backyard, he saw his grandmother's pet duck. And without even thinking, he put his stone in there and he flipped it. And wouldn't you know it, for the first time that day, he hit his target. He hit his grandmother's pet duck right in the head, killed it. His first moment was joy. I finally hit my target. And then his very next moment was, what in the world have I done? His heart sank. 
And he thought, what am I going to do? He looked to his left and his right and he found a little comfort in the fact that nobody was watching him. And so he drug the duck over to the wood pile and he threw some wood off the pile. He threw the duck down in the middle and he put the wood back on top. He looks left and right again and he's comfortable with the fact that nobody has seen it. He goes into the house and he eats lunch. And after lunch, grandmother says, Sally, it's your turn to stay in and help with the dishes this afternoon. And she says, oh, grandmother, grandmother, Johnny was just telling me that he wants to stay in and do the dishes this afternoon. And Johnny looks over and begins to protest. Why do you? And she quickly comes over and whispers in his ear, I saw you kill grandmother's duck. And so he immediately begins to say, yes, grandmother, I would be glad to stay in and help you do the dishes. The next morning, breakfast is wrapping up and and granddaddy's going to take them both fishing for the morning. But then grandmother says, oh, but but honey, today was the day we were going to have a special lunch. And I've been waiting all week to teach Sally how to cook this special dish. And and so Sally's going to have to stay in. And she immediately pops up and says, but grandmother... Johnny was just telling me last night that he wants to learn how to cook. He would rather stay in and cook than go fishing, I know. And he looks at her so hard and she mouths the words across the room, remember the duck? And so he immediately says, yes, grandmother, I would be glad to stay in from fishing and help you prepare this special dish. This goes on for two or three days. Finally, he can't stand the guilt anymore. He walks up to his grandmother and says, can we sit down and talk? She pulls him up close to him and he says, grandmother, I'm very sorry. I don't know why I did it, but I was wrong to do it. The other day, I killed your pet duck. She says, Johnny, I'm glad that you've confessed that to me. And not only do I forgive you, I have forgiven you several days ago. He says, Grandmother, what are you talking about? He says, you see, I was watching out the kitchen window and I saw the whole thing. He says, Grandmother, why haven't you said something before now? She said, Johnny, when I saw what Sally was doing, I just wanted to know how long you would be her slave before you would decide freedom was a better way to live. Friends, everybody here tonight has a master. Everybody. Either Satan is your master or the Lord Almighty is your master. But everybody has a master. And the master Satan is a cruel master. He's like the masters in Exodus, the first chapter, when the children of Israel being held as slaves. But they were growing greater in number and more powerful in strength. And so the Pharaoh that no longer remembered Joseph and appreciated the Israelites decided they had to do something to, to stop the growth of the nation of Israel. And so you remember at one point they decided they would kill the babies, the baby boys as they were born. But at another point they decided what they would do is tell all the taskmasters that were working the slaves to work them literally to death. The word there in our English language in Exodus the first chapter he says he made them serve with rigor. The word rigor means literally to crush or to break in pieces. They literally were going to use slavery to the point that they were going to crush and break lives to the point that they were going to demote the population of Israel. Can you imagine those men and women out there trying to make the blocks and make the brick for all these Egyptian cities? 
And can you imagine them saying as they did, now we're going to require you to make even more blocks, but we're not going to supply the straw. You're going to have to go out and find your own straw, but still the production has to stay up. And you can imagine a slave with a bull whip ripping the backs open of of individuals, not only because you want a greater production, but because you want men and women to die because you want the population to be less. And it is with that description that the taskmasters were crushing the people to death. Friends, things hasn't changed. Satan is still that kind of taskmaster. Satan wants to crush our lives. He wants to destroy the peace that passes understanding. He wants to take away the joy that we could have in relationships. He wants to take away everything that is of worth and value and and, and allow us to face it from either an apathetic standpoint or a destructive standpoint. He has his spiritual bullwhip over us trying to destroy whatever might be spiritual in our life. As a matter of fact, when John the 8th chapter describes this taskmaster, he says that he is the father of lies and all of his resources are of lies. But then there's Jesus. Think about this taskmaster. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in spirit, and ye shall find rest unto your soul. Friend, when this taskmaster wears us down to where we feel like we can't handle it anymore, there's this master over here that's saying, be free. How long are you going to be a slave of that? Be free. Come to the place of a master that loves you, a master that provides what's best for you. Come to the place where you can find rest unto your soul. In Romans the 6th chapter, look if you will, in Romans the 6th chapter, He speaks of a group of individuals that were able to find deliverance from the taskmaster of destruction to the master that could provide great peace. Romans the 6th chapter and verse 17. And let's notice what these individuals did in order to find this great release from this destructive force. In Romans the 6th chapter and verse 17, but God be thanked. In other words, the only way we're going to make this transition is by the grace of God. But God be thanked that though you were Slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. How did they become released from the slavery of sin? Number one, they were genuine. They were committed. They weren't playing games with God. When they obeyed, they obeyed from the heart. But notice what they obeyed. That form of doctrine. Friends, do you realize that what the Lord is saying here is He is saying there is a form of doctrine. But notice He didn't say forms of doctrines. The Lord doesn't say, listen, I'll save you and and if, if you live in the Middle East, I'll save you through this God. Or if you're a part of this religion, I'll save you through this means. Or if you just want it your way, I'll save you your way. You see that God has never been a God who says, listen, I'm weak, I'm cowardly. Instead, we serve a God who is the Almighty, who says, I know what's right, I know what's best, and that's what I'm asking of you. Think how how simple, but yet how exclusive Jesus is and was in His speaking when He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. John 14 and 6. Lord, how many ways are there to the Father? One. He says, I am the way. And He gives us a plan of redemption. 
And it's not one scheme to one group of people and another scheme to another group of people. And please understand from the very beginning of this lesson tonight, please understand this. My goal tonight is not to present to you what I believe the plan of salvation is. And I hope that people here will start believing what I believe. Friends, I'm not a savior. I can't take away one sin that you've ever committed in the past and the guilt of it. I have not built a heaven and I don't have the capability to build a heaven. And when you listen to someone who says they can save your soul, they better have also built a heaven and they could redeem you. There's only one that can save your soul. There's only one that has prepared a place for you. And he says that there is a singular form of doctrine by which he saves. So tonight, let's consider what is it that Jesus says is his form of doctrine. We know from Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, that it is our sins and our iniquities that have separated us from God. I want you to think about God right here and us right here. As long as we are one with God, we are spiritually alive. Death is a separation. The last verse in James, the second chapter, tells us that physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body. That's physical death. What's spiritual death? Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, spiritual death is when sin separates us from God. Now, what's salvation? Salvation is when the guilt of that sin has been removed. Friends, if you could remove the guilt of your own sin, you could be your own savior. But we can't remove the guilt of our own sin. Our best friends, our family, our religious leaders, no person can remove the guilt of your past sins. That's why Jesus is the only savior. He's the only one that can remove the guilt of that, bringing us back to be one with God. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew, the seventh chapter. As we consider what the Lord shows us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it interesting how oftentimes sermons, even in the Scriptures, end by asking people to consider the day of judgment? Because really when all has been said, that's all that matters. Have we lived our life on this earth in view of the fact that one day I'm going to stand before the Lord and He is the the Almighty Judge? And so the great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, It closes in that same fashion, except what he says here, if a man said it by their own authority, it would be offensive. But Jesus says some words here that for him to say them, they provoke thought in our mind. Matthew, the seventh chapter, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And you see at this point what's happened? Jesus says, let me show you what judgment day is going to look like. Friends, I'm not saying this. Jesus is saying this. Let me show you what judgment day is going to look like for many people. It's the word he used. Many people. Many people are going to stand on the day of judgment in confidence. They say, Lord, I'm glad to be standing here. You remember? While I was on this earth, I I called out, Lord, Lord, because I knew that you were the one that could save. Oh, and not only that, Lord, remember? We were the ones that I went out and I prophesied. I taught other people in your name. Oh, not only that, I recognized that there was devils and demons. and, And Lord, I fought demons in your name. 
And Lord, I did many wonderful good works. Lord, I went down to hospitals. I helped shut-ins. Remember me, Lord? I'm the one that did all of that good in your name. 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What is Jesus saying to us? Friends, if these people were our neighbors, and somebody says, hey, what kind of neighbors do you have? You and I would probably say, I tell you, i got some of the best neighbors on earth. They're people that talk about Jesus, they spread the name of Jesus, they try to fight Satan in the name of Jesus. And let me tell you, when, when, when we have somebody sick in our family, they're the first ones next door, and, and they tell us they want to help us because that's what Jesus would want them to do. And Jesus says to those people, depart from me. To the people that have cried out, Lord, Lord, save me. He said, depart from me. Why? There's not anybody here wise enough to judge why except just to read what Jesus said. Look again at 23. Jesus said, I'm going to say to them, I'm going to declare to them, I never knew you. Notice, Jesus here is not saying, listen, you were saved, you obeyed that form of doctrine, and then something was wrong with your religion. And so since something's wrong with your religion, I'm going to cast you away from me. He didn't say that. What did he say? Jesus said, I'm going to say to that group of people, I never knew you. In other words, it is impossible to start wrong and end right. And someone says, but don't you see all the things in the middle that I did right? Didn't you see all of the the religion that I did right? Didn't you see how I said so many good things in your name and I did that right? And the Lord says, wait a minute. And I don't mean to make light of it, but it's almost as if the Lord is saying, hey, who's calling the shots here? Didn't I tell you the way that I wanted you to begin? And if you choose not to listen to the way I say to begin, don't think that just because you jump in the middle that I'm going to ignore your disobedience in the beginning. Friends, listen, it's not man that makes a big deal about the way to begin a relationship with God. God is the one that says, there is a form of doctrine that we must obey. So what is that form of doctrine? I'd like for you to imagine that there's somebody that really would love to run marathons. Can you imagine how crazy that is? I know we've got a lot of runners in this congregation. And you've probably heard me say that as long as I have a dependable car in the driveway, I'm not running 26.2 miles. But I do admire the discipline. I do admire the training and the commitment to, to pull that off. But I want you to imagine with me for a minute that there's somebody that has said, 
you know, I've never done anything like that before, and, and I want to train to be a runner. And, and so they've started running a little bit, and here comes around the Music City Marathon, and, and they say, you know, I'm not ready this, this year, but I'm going to go down there, and I'm going to watch it and all, and by next year, I'm going to train, and I'm going to be ready to run this. And so, so they go down there, and they stand on maybe the, the 17th or 18th mile, and, and they're just standing there, and they're watching, and, and they're getting really worked up because they're getting fired up about the thought of, of running a marathon one day. And here come the first people by. And the first one is Griff and David. But no, it was Kenyans. They were the first ones that came by. And, and you know, you're, you're watching those individuals come by, and, and you, you think to yourself, man, isn't that neat? Look how fast they are. I want to be able to run like that one day. And then a little bit, here comes some more people by, and you can tell a couple of them know each other, and they're, they're kind of cheering each other on and, and urging each other on. And you think, that's what I want to do. I want to run, and, and I want to be able to do it with somebody else like that and just have that friendship and that bond. Oh, that's good. And a little bit later, you, you see a family come running by, and you say, oh, wouldn't that be even better? We could do this together. Oh, and, and the guy just gets worked up. And before he even knows what he's doing, he ducks under the tape, and he starts running. The people standing around, he said, hey, hey, you can't do that get back here get back here and when he goes around the next curve instead of people saying get back here everybody's saying go go they didn't see him duck under the tape and everybody's cheering him on and the other runners they're even coming by cheering him on come on man you can do it and he starts cheering them on and and other guys saying man thanks for the encouragement hey no problem he's running after a few miles he's sweating he looks just like all the other runners. He goes by the stations and he gets water and he gets bananas and he does everything just like everybody else is doing it. And he runs and he runs. And finally about 23 or 24th mile, he starts hitting that wall and he says to himself, I'm not quitting. I said I was going to be a runner. I said I was going to finish this race. I'm not quitting. And he runs through the pain and he runs through the wall and he keeps running. He looks down. He sees blood running down the side of his foot. He's limping. His, arm, his, his stomach is hurting. And he runs and finally he sees at the end, the finish line and he's giving everything he has and everybody's cheering him on and everybody's telling him he can finish and he finishes, he starts yelling, I finished! My first marathon, I finished! An official comes up clipboard and says, hey, uh, listen, your chip fell out of your shoe. Hey, I just need to get your name so that we can get your time recorded. What's your name? He gives him a name and, and he's giving high fives to everybody around. He's finished his first marathon. He's so excited. The person comes back up again and says, listen, I hate to bother you, but something's wrong. I, I must have wrote your name down wrong. Tell me your name again. You, you did register, didn't you? Hey, hey, listen. Do you see this sweat? Do you see this blood right here? Listen, don't, don't be doing things like that. That is so inappropriate. Do you see how genuine and sincere I am? Don't be asking me about the starting line. How ridiculous is that? Listen, you just go about your way. Sir, ma'am, we've got to get this straight. Give me your exact name. Give me your address. We need to go back in the files. We just need to know when you started this race. Listen, I want to tell you something. It's people like you that get marathons a bad name. Listen, you need to quit judging everybody. And you need to just go back to the business of standing at the finish line and just congratulating everybody. Friends, before Jesus closes a Sermon on the Mount, He makes something real clear. You can't start wrong and finish right no matter what you've done in between. And so tonight, I ask you for the next few minutes as we look at some simple passages, will you be honest? I've had the great privilege 
baptizing a lot of adults. And I've baptized far more adults that at the beginning of a study believed that they were saved, but by the time we finished a study of the Scriptures, they found out that they had not started where the Lord said to start. And in an audience this size, I know that probability is that there's several here that came tonight thinking you're running. Tonight, we're not trying to figure out who's right or who's wrong so, so we can have a pride debate. But let's all commit that right now, all we want to do is make sure that we've obeyed God and that we have started where He says to start and we've obeyed that form of doctrine. So what is it the Lord wants us to do? Well, where would Jesus start? Look, if you will, Matthew, the 22nd chapter. Matthew, the 22nd chapter. Here's where Jesus began. Matthew, the 22nd chapter. We look at verse 37. They asked Jesus which was the greatest commandment. In verse 37, this is where Jesus said that everybody ought to start. 37, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Where do we start? We have to decide if we love the Lord, if we love Jesus with all of our being. The Lord isn't looking for individuals that will make Him king of their life on Sunday and no other day of the week. The Lord's not looking for individuals that are only looking for a religion. The Lord is looking for individuals that will make Him the Lord of their life, day in and day out, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus says that's the first and greatest commandment. Be turning, if you will, to John the 8th chapter. In John the 8th chapter and 24, as you're turning to John 8 and 24, I want to remind you of a second thing that Jesus said. Nicodemus came to him at a nighttime visit because, you see, he probably didn't want anybody else to know that he was coming to Jesus. And he wanted to have that private talk with Jesus. He was trying to figure out who is this man that could do such mighty miracles. And it is in that setting that Jesus him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Notice this. That whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If we were to ask Jesus, what is it you want me to do to be saved? One, He would say, I want you to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second, I want you to believe that I truly am the Son of God. That I am the Savior that can save people from their sins. Now that may sound simple for us, but for those coming out of Judaism where, where they just didn't believe that Jesus fit the mode of the Messiah, you know, he was from the wrong side of the tracks, he was from Galilee, he wasn't building some kind of earthly empire as their traditions had taught them that he would, and they didn't want to believe in Jesus. And, and so we see a group of them here in John 8 and 24, and Jesus speaks to them and says this, John 8 and 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus What do you want us to do? And he says, I want you to believe that I'm he. Who? The Savior of the world, the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, Jesus, what if we don't believe that? There's no hope. You'll die in your sins. Why? He's the only Savior. You're drowning in a pool and there's only one person anywhere close. And you're drowning in the pool and that one person throws you a life rope. And as you grab a hold of the life rope, you look back at the one that's the other end and you yell to that person, I don't want you to save me. 
that person looks around and says, there's nobody else here to save you. And you do what? You either let the one that can save you save you or you die. Jesus is looking at a group of individuals. They wanted to wait on, quote, another Messiah. There wasn't going to be another. If you don't believe that I'm the one that can save you, you'll die in your sins. Jesus is making a passionate plea to them to believe that He is the Messiah. If you will, turn to Acts 26. Acts 26. In verse 20, Paul is standing before Agrippa. And he has given an account of his life and of his ministry. As much as anything, he's preaching about Christianity. And so in this, he talks about the places that he went, but then he talked about what he preached. And what he preached was repentance. And at the end of this, not only does he reveal that he preached repentance, but he even defines repentance. Look at Acts 26 and 20. But I declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles. Okay, so that's all the places and people that he preached to. What did he say to them? That they should repent. What does that mean? Turn to God and do the works befitting repentance. Isn't that interesting? What does repent mean? Many times when I ask individuals what repent means, they begin to describe something like saying, it, it's saying to God that you're sorry and that you want Him to save you. Definitely repentance involves a sorrow. But friends, it is a sorrow that comes about first because of a change. Repentance is all about a turn. It's when we turn our heart, when we turn our mind, when we turn from living for the flesh or living for the taskmaster Satan, and we turn to God. See that at the end of that verse, Acts 26 and 20? You repent, turn to God. And what does, takes place in our life at that time? When we turn to God, we do the works befitting repentance. In other words, we do the things that prove that we have repented. It doesn't matter when you became a Christian. It may have been a couple of days ago or it may have been a couple of decades ago. But your life today should have been lived in such a way that what you did proved that there was a point in time in the past that you repented of your sins. I think about the guy that was baptized into Christ several years ago. And, and a couple of weeks after that, he, he came to me and he said, Hey, I've got to tell you a story that happened today at work. It's pretty neat. He was an engineer at Goodyear, and, and he, said, he said, I was walking down uh, the, the office hall uh, the other day, and, and I stepped into my office, and when I stepped into my office, I heard, I heard the door shut behind me. Didn't know anybody was behind me, turned around to who it was, and it was one of my best buddies at work. And he said, what's wrong with you? He said, I didn't know what he's talking about. I said, I don't know, nothing's wrong with me. He says, oh yeah, something's wrong with you. He said, you used to be the king of dirty jokes and you used to curse a lot and you used to go after work to, to the bars with us and, and now you don't do any of that stuff. What's wrong with you now? He said, oh, that. He said, I've become a Christian now. I live a new life. The guy looked at him and said, I wish I could do that. And walked out of the office. Do the works proving Repentance. Yes, repentance involves sorrow, but it's a sorrow that says, I'm sorry that I lived in that life that was against God. I'm sorry I hurt God. But now I want to turn, I want to change, and I want to live a life for God. But then the question arises, are we ashamed of the Lord or not? Turn, if you will, to John the 12th chapter. Just back a few pages, John the 12th chapter. 
You know, in Matthew, the 10th chapter in 32, Jesus talked about whether or not we were willing to confess. He says, if we'll confess him on earth to man, that he'll confess us before the Father which is in heaven. You see, that's a scene of the day of judgment. And if we deny him on earth before men, that we will, he will deny us before the Father which is in heaven. Are we willing to confess the Lord? You see, confession is always tied with whether or not we're ashamed of Jesus. Here's a a good example of it. In in John, the 12th chapter, there were some that were still, of course, clinging to the the old Jewish religion. And and they didn't want to give up all of that to become a disciple of Jesus. And so in 42, he says, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believe. This is John 12 and 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees... They did not confess him. See that? They did not confess him. Lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Why? For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So you go up to one of these rulers. He had a place of position. He had a place of power. You go up to one of these rulers in the synagogue. Now notice, he had watched Jesus live on this earth. He had watched him die on the cross. He'd seen all of his miracles and heard all of his powerful teachings. He'd seen him buried, but he'd seen him resurrected. And they watched him walk around on the earth the 40 days afterwards. They knew who Jesus was. And so you could go up to that ruler in the synagogue, and if you could read his heart, his heart would say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But if you go up and ask him, hey, do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? He'd say, oh, no, no. I'm never going to confess that. Why? They'd rather have the praise of men. I want to hang on to my religion. I want to hang on to my power. I want to hang on to my acceptance in this culture. I'd rather have the praise of men than the praise of God. Friends, do you realize in the first century how many individuals were willing to give their life, die as a martyr, before they would refuse to confess Jesus? Jesus wants to know Not when the knife comes to our throat whether or not we confess Him. He simply wants to know as we come to Him, Lord, I'm serious about this. I really do love You with all of my heart. I really do believe that You're the Son of God, the Savior. I believe it so much I'm willing to change my life and I believe it so much, Lord, I'd die for it. Lord, I believe. But notice, none of these things in the Scriptures points to the fact that at this point our sins are remiss, are washed away, are removed. All of these things are important, but where is it that is the place and time where the Lord says, at this point, I'll forgive you. I'll take that sin away. If you will look with me to Mark the 16th chapter. Mark the 16th chapter, we see the Great Commission. In Mark 16... Verse 15 and 16, Mark 16, verse 15 and 16. He gives this commission and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's the good news. Preach this gospel. Do you think that gospel includes that form of doctrine which saves? He even refers to a portion of that form of doctrine in the very next verse. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will not, 
will be condemned. If somebody is not going to become a believer, obviously they're not going to be baptized. They, there is no hope for that individual, Jesus says. But he says, I want you to take this message and I want you to teach and I want you to preach and I want you to go to all the world and I want you to go to every creature. It doesn't matter if they're young or old, if they're rich or poor. It doesn't matter which side of the world they live on or which side of the tracks they live on. I want you to go to every creature. Why? It's not the Lord's will that any should perish. Lord, what do you want us to tell them? I want you to tell them to believe in me and I want it to conclude in baptism. I want to see those individuals immersed. Why? Look, if you will, to Acts 2 and 38, because there's something that takes place in baptism that is so important. In Acts 2 and 38, we have the beginning of the church here in Acts, the second chapter. These are the individuals that have been guilty of crucifying Jesus just a few weeks earlier. They now are convicted of the fact that they have made a terrible mistake in their life and that they are separated from God. Keep in mind, at the beginning of the sermon that we're reading here in Acts 2, you could have went up to those Jews and you could have said, hey, are you saved? And they would have said, absolutely, we're saved. We're some of the most righteous people on this earth. And at the end of the sermon, they know that they're not saved and they cry out in 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And notice what he says here in 38. Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall the gift of the Holy Ghost. Friends, when we see here, Jesus, why do you want us to be baptized? He says, it's there that I will remove the guilt of the sins. And now, now God and us can come back together again. Acts 22 and 16, Paul went... Ananias went up to Paul back when his name was Saul, back when he was still lost and separated from God. The Lord had gotten his attention on that road to Damascus. And when he asked on the road to Damascus, what shall I do? Remember, the Lord didn't say nothing. You're already saved. He said, go to Damascus and wait there and it will be told you what you must do. He goes and he waits like the Lord told him. And Ananias came to him and in Acts 22 and 16, Ananias said, and why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Friends, you want to call on the name of the Lord? Look, every time that's used in the Scripture, it has nothing to do with a prayer. It doesn't. Look, check it out, read it through and through. Calling on the name of the Lord, the name there means authority. I'm calling out so that I can live my name by the authority of the Lord. Lord, what is it you want me to do? I want you to be baptized because that's when I wash away the guilt of your sins. That's when you call on the name of the Lord. 1 Peter 3 and 21, baptism doth also now save us. Friends, The most common way that individuals are taught today in the Christian community to be saved is to invite the Lord into your heart by saying a sinner's prayer. Lord, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. I invite you into my heart. I ask you to save me of my sins. Thank you for being my Savior. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. If the Lord was going to save us through a prayer, don't you think that that prayer would be in the Bible 
Just one time. Just once. Or if we have so many conversion stories in the book of Acts, don't you think it would be in there over and over? But it's not. That prayer is not a form of the doctrine that saves. But many that teach that prayer teach that after that prayer, you'll still want to have a baptism. Well, what's that baptism for? Well, you get a lot of different answers. Some will say it's to join a certain denomination. Others will say it's an outward expression of an inward faith. But again, that's not at all taught in the Scriptures. Some will even say, baptism is just something we do for obedience. There's not really anything that takes place there. Now, wait a minute. We've already read that it's there is where God remisses our sins. It's there where God washes away our sins. And it was there where God saves us. That's a lot more than nothing. But perhaps one of the most important verses as it relates to all of this is in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, and verse 5, there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Friends, I can't have a baptism that is because I'm saved and then turn around and say, oh, that's good enough. I've had the baptism when the Lord says there's only one and we say, okay, Lord, what is that one baptism? And He says that one baptism is for the remission of sins. In other words, there's, in the Bible, in the Bible, never was there a saved person baptized. It's not there. Never was there a person that was saved as a result of a prayer. The thief on the cross, he didn't really say a prayer, but he also didn't die under the new covenant. Hebrews 9, 15, 16, and 17, the new covenant did not begin until Jesus Christ died. The church wasn't established for 50 more days. Christianity had not begun. And so if we want to look at the periods of time, the thief on the cross died under the same period of time that Moses died under. Isaiah, Jeremiah, all those of old died under. Friends, we don't live under that dispensation of time. If we want to talk about how are we saved today under Christianity, we're saved under Christianity by the Savior who says, love me with all of your heart. Believe in me. Repent of sins. Confess me, me before men. And be baptized into me for the remission of sins. In Romans 6, 3, 4, 5, and 6, we do not become a new creation until we are raised out of that water. You don't bury the living. 
You don't become a new creation through a prayer and then bury the new creation. Read Romans 6, 3, 4, 5, and 6. You take the one that's still lost in sin. You take the one that's still separated from the Lord. And just as he was buried, we are buried in a watery grave. And just as he was raised from the grave, now we are raised from a spiritual grave. And now we are alive. Tonight, I know it may not be a safe question to ask. But as we close this lesson, I want to ask you to pretend for just a moment you were Satan. If you wanted to pull as many people away from the Lord as possible, what would be one thing that you would want to make sure was confused, was deceptive? that misled a lot of people. I want to tell you something that breaks my heart. I'll be honest with you, I can't dwell on it for long periods of time because I begin to grip my teeth and I begin to get so mad. And that's the scheme of Satan as it relates to the sinner's prayer. Because he has pulled out a clever one. Now, in the last 125 years, he has pulled so many out. It's relatively, compared to the length of Christianity, it's a new scheme. It hasn't always been around. But wow, has he pulled that one out strong. And he's gotten so many people to believe that they're saved. They jump in the middle of the marathon and they say a lot of good things about Jesus. They fight demons in a lot of ways. And they do a lot of good works in the name of Jesus. And according to Jesus, Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. It's impossible to finish right if we never start right. One day, every knee, not just one of your two, every knee in this house will bow before God. And every tongue will confess on that day that He is the Son of God and the Savior. And there's going to be a great divide on that day of what individuals hear. Some are going to hear, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And many are going to hear, depart from me, for I never knew you. And according to Jesus, many of that group, they're going to try to cry out, Lord, don't you remember how religious we were? Don't you remember how we cried out to you to save us? 
Lord, isn't there some kind of mistake here? And Jesus says, I'll tell them to depart from me. Friends, tonight, do you realize what's at stake? Have you stared eternity in the eyes? Are you willing to look at the Lord and say, I never took your form of doctrine seriously? I never cared that much? Or what excuse? What excuse would you give? As a fellow told me at the door today, we're probably in front of a half a million dollar house. He said, no, I I wouldn't have time for a study because I'm going through an in-depth audit right now. What excuse would you give? Whatever it is, now imagine looking at the Lord and saying, Lord, I decided to never become a Christian because I was going through an audit. Or Lord, because I just always believed if you're a good neighbor, that was good enough. What excuse would be good enough? And when we look at that before the Lord, we realize none of them are good enough. None of them. But finally, instead of looking at the Lord just on a throne, imagine walking up to Him as He's hanging on a cross. And our excuses seem pretty frail, don't they? Try to explain to the one who's dying on a cross for you why you just didn't want to obey his form of doctrine. Tonight, let's be honest. Let's be honest with the Word of God and honest with our souls. Let's commit our life wholly to God. There's not anybody here perfect, but everybody here can be forgiven if we decide to begin with that form of doctrine. And if you've never begun that journey, why not tonight? Why not tonight as we stand and as we sing?